I want to thank the worship team for leading us so beautifully this morning. It's great to have youth up here and just want to encourage Dan and Holly the way they're encouraging us with their faith and trust in the midst of the trauma they're going through along with their boys. Let's keep praying for them and supporting them during this hard time. Well, I want to speak to you this morning about a word that many Christians find offensive. So brace yourselves. I'm going to spell it for you. W-A-I-T. How many of you like to wait? A couple weeks ago, Kate and I were in Chicago, and I parked my car in one of those big parking garages up at a high level, and thankfully I'd written down the the number of where I parked because I would have never found it otherwise. And when it came time for us to go back into the garage and retrieve the car, Kate and I started heading toward the stairs in the garage so we could go up and, and get it. And a security guard stopped me and said, no, you can't go in here. You've got to walk around the block and come in on the other side. So we walked around the block very patiently and came to the other side where another security guard met me as I was going up another set of stairs saying, no, you can't come in here. You've got to go around and come in on the other side. And Kate can tell you how patient I was at that point. (laughs) How many of you like to wait in traffic or wait in line at the grocery store? or wait at the doctor's office, or wait for the results of medical tests, or wait for your family to get ready for church on Sunday morning. How many of you are enjoying waiting for Christmas gifts that are sitting in a shipping container off the coast of California right now? And how many of you kids are tempted to peek inside those packages that are wrapped nicely under the tree because you can hardly wait to open what's coming for you on Christmas. We're a people who need to be taught how to wait. It doesn't come naturally. The word that the Bible uses for wait has the idea of being twisted and stretched. There's a tension involved in it. You have to endure while you're waiting. But Paul Tripp says it well. On this side of eternity, you and I are called to wait. We are called to recognize that the most important, most essential, most beautiful, and most lasting things we're going to enjoy here in our lives are things over which we have no control. They are gifts from a heavenly father who is gracious, kind, and wise, and faithful. So we need to learn how to wait on the Lord as he speaks to us once more from this amazing chapter in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm going to read from verses 27 through 31. May the word of God do the work of God through the spirit of God in us, the people of God, as we listen to God's voice in Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thanks be to God for his living word that endures forever. Amen. Well, here's an insightful description of what it means to wait on the Lord. Ray Orland Jr. says, Waiting is what faith does before God's answer shows up. Waiting is what faith does before God's answer shows up. There were 400 years of silence between the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, which announces the birth of Jesus. 400 years of silence. What did God do? What did God's people do during those 400 years of silence? They waited. They waited with hope and expectation. They lived in confident, eager suspense for the fulfillment of God's word. They were living between the gap of the promise of the Messiah and the reality of their need. Waiting is what faith does before God's answer shows up. So I want to consider this theme of waiting this morning from three different angles. First, we're going to look at the alternatives to waiting on the Lord. Secondly, the incentives God gives us to wait on him. And then thirdly, some illustrations of a life of faithful waiting. So first, what are the alternatives? If we don't wait on the Lord, what other choice do we have? Well, if we refuse to wait... Our only other recourse is to whine. And that's what God's people are doing. That's what Isaiah is confronting them about in this passage. They're whining in their weariness. They're moaning. They're groaning. In verse 27, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Here's God's people teetering on the brink of despair. They're saying, where is God when we need him? Why isn't he doing something about our miserable situation? He no longer notices us. He's constantly dismissing our case. God no longer has our back. He's disciplined us. He sent us away from our homes and sent us into exile in Babylon. And he's forgotten his promises to us. And he's abandoned us. And some of you know what that feels like, to feel like you've been abandoned by God. But whenever we feel like God has abandoned us, it's because we've drawn a premature conclusion. We've forgotten that God is still writing the story of our lives. And this is just a chapter in it. No matter how how bad the bad news is, God has better news to follow. The story's not over yet. 
So these people, they've forgotten God's purposes that he announced in verses 1 and 2 to comfort them in their weariness. They've forgotten that God is going to reveal his glory to them, as he says in verses 3 through 5. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. They've forgotten that. They've forgotten that the promises in God's word will come true because the prophet says in verse 6, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. They've forgotten that God wants to use them in the midst of their affliction to proclaim his glory, to show forth his power, to say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And they've forgotten everything that God has revealed about his majesty that we heard last week in verses 12 through 26. So Isaiah gets a hold of them here and he asks them, why do you keep complaining like this, O Jacob, O Israel? And with those names, with those words, Jacob, Israel, we're hearing a glimmer of the good news. You may feel discarded, cast aside, forgotten by God, but God is saying, Jacob, Israel, you still have a place in my heart. You're still my covenant people. And God wants us to know we're not the first people who have wrestled with him in the midst of the perplexities of life to understand his purposes and plans. Jacob in the Old Testament also wrestled with God, but he prevailed in faith and God blessed him. And just as God was faithful to Jacob and Israel, so he will be faithful to his word in our lives. He's not forgotten us. So here's the choice that's set before us. Here's the alternatives with stark clarity. We can wait patiently for God to unfold the rest of his story in our lives, or we can whine about how God has forgotten us, waiting or whining. Which of these two seems more productive to you? Which of these two is going to yield better fruit in your life? Will you wait or will you whine? Faith chooses to wait Waiting is what faith does before God's answer shows up. Now let's look at the incentives. How does God encourage us in this passage to wait on him? And he starts by reminding us who he is. We see it so beautifully in verse 28. As God summarizes everything he said about his majesty in this whole chapter in one verse. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Friends, it's right here, verse 28. The antidote to all our weariness. The solution to all our discouragement is right here. It's by remembering what we already know to be true about God. It's by calling to our minds and relearning the truths that we've heard from the beginning. It's by opening our ears afresh to the gospel that we've heard over and over and over again about the character of our God, but we we're not letting it sink in. I said, Isaiah says, don't you know what you've already heard? Haven't you learned yet what God is like? The Lord is the everlasting God. I was singing it on the way to church this morning. We are a vapor, but you are eternal. Lord of the ages, God before time. You are the love song we'll sing forever. Love everlasting, reigning on high. 
We need to remember the eternality of our God because all we can see is right here, right now, and we get stuck in our tunnel vision, feeling the pressure to work out everything in our lives according to our very limited perspective. But God isn't like that. If you want to make God laugh, give him a deadline. He's the eternal God. Tim Keller writes, you cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or even to be forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, and they will come true, they always burst the banks of what you imagined. God's grace virtually never operates on our time frame, on a schedule we consider reasonable. He's not constrained by the limitations of our little perspective on time, but he always fulfills his promises and bursts the banks of our expectations in doing so because he's the everlasting God who's never in a hurry, but who is always on time. Secondly, he's the creator of the ends of the earth, he tells us in verse 28. He can measure the heavens with the span of his hand, we heard. He calls out each star by name. And there's nowhere in this vast universe where he is not present. You can go to the farthest ends of the earth and God will be there. He will meet you wherever your life takes you. When you're in the ICU unit, God's already there with you. When you're in the lonely hotel room, you're not alone. God is present. When you're facing a Christmas where many of your loved ones are absent, you can know that God, Emmanuel, will be there with you. He's with you when your family's been displaced by a fire in your home. Wherever you are, God will already be there, a very present help in trouble. Another thing he tells us about himself in verse 28 is that he does not faint or grow weary. Every day I faint. Every day I need rest. A third of my lifetime is going to be spent sleeping. He never grows tired or weary. He never has to abandon his plans because he doesn't have enough strength to carry them out. He never has to postpone an event because he needs a nap. He doesn't lack the energy to accomplish his purposes, nor does he lack the commitment. His strength will never ebb away, nor will he ever get tired or bored with the task at hand. While we're fast asleep, he's watching over us and he's working for us and for the universe in a million ways that we cannot see. And he's always fresh, always alert, always attentive, always available, and always able. He does not faint or grow weary. And the last thing Isaiah tells us about God is that his understanding is unsearchable. We can't expect to fathom all God's ways. He belongs to eternity. We are locked in time. His vision is as broad as the universe. We're confined to this local space. His boundless energy means he's always out ahead of us. He's gone before us. But Alec McTeer says, God sees to the heart of this situation in a way we never can and in ways we are not equipped to appreciate. And the sooner we learn that lesson, the better. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. But we need to remember that just because we cannot discern what God is up to, 
it doesn't mean that God does not have a discernible plan. God has understanding that is unlimited. And the more we see the greatness of our God and exalt his greatness, and the more we embrace our smallness and our limitations and our incapacity, the happier we'll be because we're learning then to wait on the Lord and to trust in his knowledge and his wisdom and his foresight instead of getting frustrated and fretting and fuming over the limitations of our own. So don't expect to figure God out, but do trust that God knows what he's doing in your life and he's not frustrated, frustrated or bewildered by the things that are perplexing to you. Right here, right now, God is at work in your life. This God, the God of verse 28. I love how Isaiah 64 verse 4 says it. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. This is what makes God unique. He's a God who acts, who works for those who wait for him. And that's what verse 29 is all about. Not only does God show us who he is, he goes on to tell us what he does in verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. God wants us to know here, he's not only the God of eternity, he's not only the God who created the ends of the earth, he's not only the God of boundless energy who never tires nor grows weary, he's not only the God of infinite understanding, he's also the God of sharing strength. He's the God who shares strength. And one of the commentators puts it, this is not a spasmodic or occasional activity, but part of who he is. He is the strength-sharing God all the time for all of us, for every point of our need. Now, the human will to endure is pretty amazing. We celebrate human tenacity in movies. But I want you to understand, we all have a breaking point. None of us is able to cope with what life is going to send our way. We all faint under life's pressures. We all lack the inner vitality to keep it going if we're left to ourselves. But God is telling us in this verse, verse 29, you don't need to be left to your own resources. A better experience is possible. You can expect something wonderful from God. Not only does God have sufficient strength in himself to never tire or grow weary, he also has plenty of strength to share with us. And he doesn't share it through a syringe. Here, I'll give you a little dose of strength. No, he imparts his very self to us. He substitutes our weakness with his strength. He fills us with his spirit. And with the filling of his spirit, we are renewed by his never-fainting, never-wearying nature. And we all need this. Look at verse 30. In this verse, Isaiah is reminding us that the best of men are what? Men at best. The best of men are men at best. He goes to youths and all their strength and vitality. We've seen it this morning up on the stage. These young people can sing so well and play with such energy. But he's saying they, even in the prime of their life, faint and grow weary. And then in the second part of verse 30, he talks about vigorous young men. The word there 
for young men actually literally is picked men. The kind of men you pick out of a crowd for their athletic prowess and ability. The kind of guy you'd say, there's an Olympian if I ever saw one. Even that young man will fall exhausted. So human strength at its best is bound to fail. None of us has what it takes to make it through life. But praise God, we're not limited to the limitations of our own potential. There is hope for renewal. And Isaiah speaks of it in what's my favorite verse in this chapter, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord, for Yahweh, the faithful covenant-keeping God, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's God's promise of renewal to his people who look expectantly to him. The verb here for renew is actually speaking of an exchange of strength. It's saying they who wait for the Lord will keep putting on fresh strength, even in your 90s. A strength that is not natural. A strength that turns human beings into people who can fly who mount up with wings like eagles, that magnificent bird that usually flies alone and can reach heights that are inaccessible to most other birds. The eagle can fly at the height of 13,000 feet. And eagles concern themselves with great things, things like mountains and heights and depths. Eagles can be very still. They're not restless birds. Eagles cast themselves out from high pinnacles and they just cast themselves out and they wait for the thermals to rise up and then they spread out their wings and let the thermals bear them up to heights that no bird can reach. And they're endowed with an amazing strength. And Isaiah is saying, believer, that's what waiting on the Lord can do for you. It's a reminder here that we need to take time to get alone with God and draw our strength from him. It's wonderful to be connected to other believers, but we must not be dependent on other believers. We must be dependent on the Lord. And when we draw our strength from him, not only will we continue to love our fellow believers more than ever, but we will also find that the Lord is sufficient to sustain us and to strengthen us and to cause us to mount up with wings as eagles. But then Isaiah brings us from the heights back down to the earth. We soar up there so that we can serve down here. And he says, instead of stumbling and quitting in the race that sets before, that's set before us, when you wait on the Lord, you can find the strength to keep on going. You can keep getting your second wind. You can run and not be weary. But then he ends with this. They shall walk and not faint. This is speaking of a steadiness of life, a strong, consistent, putting one foot in front of the other, a long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson put it, every day in the common, ordinary circumstances of life. One of the most frequently used metaphors in the Bible for the Christian life is walk, because that's what it is. 
It's not always about huge strides of growth. It's not always about going at a fast speed. It's putting one foot in front of the other day by day, making steady progress, persevering through the heat and the cold, through the mundane and the miserable, continuing to keep your eyes fixed on the goal, which is being with Jesus and glorifying him. I love to jog. I can run five, six miles pretty easily. But sometimes walking a long distance is harder than running. One day I took the pastoral team years ago on a day-long retreat up to Lake Geneva. And instead of just sitting around all day, I said, let's take a hike. Let's go on a walk. We're going to walk around this lake. 22 miles of walking. And I can tell you that walking 22 miles is a lot more difficult than running 10 It takes a lot of strength to keep on walking. It takes a lot of strength to keep on moving forward in the Christian life. And we need to draw our strength from the Lord. We need to wait upon him to renew us. Because God wants to take people who would naturally be quitters and turn us all into finishers. So wait on the Lord. Expect him to fill you with his strength. Now the last question this morning is, what does this look like in real life. And I hope you understand that waiting on the Lord is not passive. It's not idle. It's not just killing time. It's not just gritting your teeth and enduring. It's an expression of hope. It's an act of confident, eager expectancy. It's actively putting yourself into the hands of the God who is not bound by our timetables. It's putting yourself into the hands of God who is present in every dark place you find yourself. It's putting yourself into the hands of the God who never grows tired or weary, the God whose understanding is beyond our ability to fathom. What does this look like? How is this illustrated? Well, Janie Orland writes that we wait on God when we patiently say this, Lord, I love you more than my longed-for answer to this hard circumstance. So we tenaciously keep praying for our child who's wandering. And we say, Lord, I love you more than my longed-for answer to this hard circumstance. So we calmly absorb the dreaded diagnosis from the doctor. And we say, Lord, I love you more than my longed-for answer to this hard circumstance. So we courageously bear up as we face a grievous goodbye in our lives. And we say, Lord, I love you more than my longed-for answer to this hard circumstance. So we faithfully persevere through a less-than-exciting job say, Lord, I love you more than my long-for answer to this hard circumstance. And we quietly accept God's plan for our future, even when it differs from our dreams, saying, Lord, I love you more than my longed-for answer to this hard circumstance. That's what waiting on the Lord looks like. And rather than leaving you with a bunch of principles and practical steps that you need to take to wait on the Lord, which could be very helpful, I thought it might be even more helpful 
if I illustrated it with three examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and one from New Covenant Bible Church in 2021. So first, the Old Testament illustration. This one's from the book of Ruth, which our preaching team is going to preach through during the month of February. And Ruth was a woman from Moab, not one who was by bloodline related to God's people. But she married a man from Bethlehem, uh, an Israelite. And he died, and Ruth found herself after his death as a widow back in Bethlehem, where her husband had come from. And she, was, uh, she had a mother-in-law named Naomi. And she heard of this man named Boaz, who was a distant relative who owned some fields and people did farming in those fields. And, and she realized that this man, Boaz, could be the answer to all my future hopes. She didn't know how to approach the situation. And she was talking with her mother-in-law about what was going on with Boaz. And her mother-in-law said this to her. And here's, here's the word. This is an illustration of waiting. Her mother-in-law said this. Sit still, my daughter until you see how the matter will turn out. Sit still, my daughter, until you see how the matter will turn out. Elizabeth Elliot talked on her radio program about how her mother gave her that verse and told her to dwell on that verse because it had been very helpful to her mom when she was a young woman, when she was worrying about her future. Or she was wondering, will I get married or won't I? Is God going to send me to the mission field? Is he going to give me a really hard assignment? And God impressed this verse on her heart. Sit still, my daughter, until you see how the matter will turn out. And that might be exactly the word that you or I need to hear this week. As we're hustling and bustling our way toward Christmas, anxious and weary and tired and frazzled, as we're perplexed by the situations in our lives and wanting it to turn out differently, God may be saying to you, he may be saying to me this morning, sit still, my daughter. Sit still, my son, until you see how the matter will turn out. I'm still writing this story, and I've got you. If you read the rest of the book of Ruth, you will see how the matter turned out. The widowed woman from Moab ends up becoming the wife of Boaz from Bethlehem. And from their union comes a son named Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of King David, from whom comes the Messiah of Israel. So waiting is what faith does until God sends his promised answer, and his promised answer will come. That's the first illustration. Now let's fast forward to the New Testament. God's people have been waiting, watching long for centuries. When and how will God fulfill his promise and send his Messiah? And in Luke chapter 2, we meet two very old people. One is named Simeon. The other is named Anna a prophetess of the Lord. And Luke tells us in Luke 2, verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
And this man was righteous and devout. And here's a key phrase, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for what God said in Isaiah 40 to come true. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And, and Simeon is waiting, saying, God, I'm trusting you. I'm looking expectantly to you to fulfill your promise. And Luke says, the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So then one day, in the winter of Simeon's life, it happened. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It happened. And I can imagine how Simeon's aged eyes glistened with delight and with tearful praise. As he looked into the door of the temple and saw this young man and this young woman walking in, holding in their arms a baby boy. And how his hands trembled as he received into his arms their infant son, Jesus. And through the Holy Spirit, Simeon knows, this is the one we've been waiting for. The hope of the world is born. And he gazes into the baby's eyes. And he praises God as he prays, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. You know what it's like. There are times in your life when you experience something so delectable, so wonderful, you say, now I can die and go to heaven. You've had that perfect piece of chocolate cake. Just every bite, you savor. Wow, I can die and go to heaven, we say flippantly. Well, Simeon meant it. He held the Lord Jesus in his arms. Now I can die in peace because your salvation has appeared. Salvation is a word that presupposes, presupposes desperation. The Bible makes it so very clear. All of humanity is in a desperate, dire, dangerous condition that requires a God-initiated salvation. We're all sinful people. We've all incurred God's just wrath because of our willful disobedience and ignorance and neglect of our maker. We've chosen to go our own way, to live independently from God. Our lives have not been characterized by thanksgiving and worship and the obedience that God deserves. Sin has made us subject to death and to damnation. And there are a lot of people who cannot say, I'm ready to die now. They're afraid to even think about it because they don't know what will face them on the other side. But Simeon is showing us the way to die in peace. It's to gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of God, and to say, you, Jesus, are my salvation. I receive you. In you, everything I've been hoping for, everything I've been waiting for finds its fulfillment. 
If you look to Jesus as the source of all your hopes, you will be satisfied not only in this life, but for eternity. But if you look to anything less than Jesus, you will end so brutally disappointed. Simeon shows us how to die in peace. Put your hope in Jesus. Look to him as the one who will provide everything your sin-sick soul needs. Well, as we celebrate Christmas this week, we rejoice with Simeon that God's promised Savior has come. And because he has come, we can depart this world in peace. But Christmas is not the end of all our hopes. Christmas is the beginning of our hope. I hope you all have a joyous Christmas. But don't pin all your hopes on having yourself a merry little Christmas. Because life goes on, right? And we're still waiting. Christmas is God's down payment. But we're waiting for the return of the king. When he will come again and turn our mourning into dancing. Every tear is going to be wiped from our eyes. Everything that disappoints and grieves us now is going to be transformed into reasons for rejoicing and everlasting joy because then we're going to see God's conclusion to this story of our lives and it's going to be more glorious than anything we could have asked for or imagined. But right now we're still waiting. And while we wait, we suffer. So let me close with the testimony of someone from our own church family. This is someone who has gone through a lot of pain and sadness. She's experienced the tension of waiting, of being twisted and stretched as she's had to surrender her desires to the Lord and relinquish control of her life to him. She wrote something beautiful in a testimony that was shared with me. And with her permission, I want to read a brief portion of it to you. She said she is learning that her life doesn't have to look identical to how she envisioned it to be in order to be happy. Isn't that an important lesson? My life doesn't have to look identical to how I envision it to be in order to be happy. And she said she is learning to pray, Lord, help me to love your plan. She wrote, I've been trying to contrive every way possible to get out of God's plan praying for it to change, praying for someone to come rescue me from it, wishing that her circumstances would change in all kinds of ways. But now she's learning to ask God to help her love his plan and to trust who he is in allowing that plan to unfold in her life. That's someone who's learning to wait for the Lord. The pastor put it like this. Waiting time is not wasted time. It may be difficult time, painful time, frustrating time, but not wasted time. Because God is working for those who wait for him. And God is never in a hurry, but he's always right on time. And just as he sent his son at just the right time, born of the Virgin Mary in a manger in Bethlehem, so he will send Jesus again in great power and glory. And when he comes, 
those who have waited for him will all agree he was worth the wait. Let's praise him. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You're the answer to all we've been hoping for. Things that we couldn't even ask or imagine find their fulfillment in you. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in you, Lord Jesus. Just as you came long ago in a manger in Bethlehem, we believe you will come again. You'll wipe every tear from our eyes. You'll satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. You'll crown our sorrows with everlasting joy. Right now, if you do not have this hope, I invite you to receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. I plead with you to take him into your arms, so to speak, as Simeon did, and to say to God, now my eyes have seen your salvation. Say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will. Don't leave here today without hope and without Jesus in this world.